Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We'll now have the uh, word of God preached by our pastor, Sam. Good morning, everybody. Um, You know, I hope you're enjoying your your three-day weekend. You know, my wife, uh, she took a trip to San Francisco, so she's not here. And uh, I was in the back with uh, our oldest child. And usually I'm up in front, you know, giving the announcements. And I always wondered why uh, parents with kids would, like, just kind of book it and hurry up and send their kids to the next room. And I, I get it. Uh, I'm like sweating just to, uh, just worshiping and just trying to keep seated. All right. Uh, you know, we are, <coughs> it's a three-day weekend. Uh, you know, it's a little bit, um, let me start over. I got to get my head into this, okay? Um, so technology you know, to log into my computer, it's supposed to scan my face, and it can't find me, so I can't pull up my sermon yet. There we go. All right. Sorry about that. All right. <coughs> you know, uh, one of the things that we want to do this year, just kind of a, a big-term goal as we were talking with elders, is we want to hit on some of the basics of the Christian life and some Christian practices that we want to do. And this is not going to be a series in a traditional sense. In the, uh, we're, not, we're not looking at these topics consecutively on consecutive Sundays, but I think as it's appropriate, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to bring up these topics, and it's not just going to be me. So the other elders, Fred and Peter, uh, they are also going to uh, have an opportunity to share a message or two in the future. And the first topic we looked at was a couple weeks ago when Bible study was starting, and I want to encourage uh, us to read the Bible and to study the Bible because uh, it's, it's just very important to know what the Bible says. And for the next topic, what I intended to talk about was the topic of prayer. But seeing as though Wednesday started a season of Lent, I thought we would look at the topic of fasting. Now, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with Lent or how many of you actually observe it. Just personally, I don't really uh, observe it. I wasn't used to observing it. It's not part of the tradition that I grew up in. And historically, this was typically uh, a Catholic church thing or an Eastern Orthodox church thing or certain Protestant churches would even practice the season of Lent. 
But I think it seems to have caught on, at least broadly, and I'm starting to see more and more people practice it, uh, including people who, ha who don't come from those particular traditions. And uh, one of the things that people do during the course of Lent is they practice fasting. So I thought, how appropriate, we should talk about fasting today. Now, if you're curious about the history of Lent, uh, I don't know for certain when it started, but there's some evidence that maybe it started around the 2nd or 3rd century. Certainly by the time of the 4th century, there's clear discussions about having this 40-day Lenten period of fasting, and uh, it's meant to imitate this 40-day period where Jesus fasted uh, in the wilderness. And it's, you know, it's a very old Christian practice or Christian tradition that seems to have uh, lasted at least until the present day. And it's a season that begins on Ash Wednesday, which was uh, this past Wednesday, and it concludes on Good Friday. Now, if you do the math, that ends up being more than 40 days. And I think the reason for that is because Sunday is not meant to be included in the period of fasting. So Sunday is meant to be a period of feasting uh, where the people of God gather and worship. But this is uh, nevertheless a, a nice season to examine our hearts, to examine ourselves, to examine our relationship with God, and historically that oftentimes included the practice of fasting. Now Lent, uh, it's not supposed to just be like a diet. Uh, it's not meant to be uh, a way to just kind of say, you know, this is a good time to get healthier and to not eat unhealthy foods or to uh, lose some weight. But fasting is not something that's primarily physical, but supposed to be primarily spiritual. There's a spiritual uh, component to it. And, you know, when we uh, have this season of self-examination coupled with uh, maybe more intensified prayer, uh, coupled with fasting, I think there's a hope that we want to bear some real spiritual fruit. Now, I think if I were to take a guess, most Western Christians probably don't uh, fast on a regular basis, uh, which if, if that's true, then uh, that actually makes us an anomaly compared to all believers throughout all of history. You know, I don't know if you remember last year, we, we actually attempted to uh, fast as a congregation last year during Lent, and we had a prayer meeting, uh, I think it was like on Tuesdays, and uh, the idea was like we would fast for the day, and then we would have a prayer meeting at the end of the day, and then after that prayer meeting, we would uh, break fast together. Uh, I don't know if anybody here participated in that, but, um, you know, because I, I think at the prayer meetings, it was only the elders uh, who came, but at least for us, you know, it was a very uh, powerful time of, of prayer, and uh, I can't explain it, but for some reason, the fasting, I think, intensified that prayer. Uh, if none of you did it last year, and if none of you have really fasted um, recently, you're probably not alone, right? I wouldn't be very surprised, because I think maybe most of us, we don't see fasting as a, a basic primary spiritual discipline that we ought to be practicing. Otherwise, you know, there, I think there would be a greater emphasis on doing it, uh, which I don't preach from the pulpit. This is probably the first message I've uh, ever preached on fasting. Uh, I've only heard one other message on fasting. That was from Mark a couple years ago. Uh, it was a great message. Um, if you don't like this message on fasting, go back to that one and you can hear it. But you know, we probably, I think, see fasting a little bit more like, you know, guacamole on a burrito. It, it's like a nice additive. It's a nice thing to add to our spiritual life, but it's not one of the uh, basic ingredients. It's not the rice, and it's not the beans. But here's what I want to suggest today, that we should probably look at fasting not as something that is kind of like a nice add-on to have. It's for, like, the super holy people. It's, like, for the people who are uh, truly uh, serious about their relationship with God. 
uh, I think we should actually see fasting as something that we, we all need and something that enhances our prayer lives. It's, it's, you know, if prayer is like the rice of a burrito, fasting is like the bean of a burrito, and together that combination enhances the entire burrito. <laughs> and I think that's what fasting can do for us and for our prayer lives. Now, you might be hear, uh, surprised to hear me say that fasting is uh, a basic spiritual discipline, but you know, if you look in the Bible, fasting is mentioned a lot of times. It's mentioned pretty frequently. Um, a couple references, Judges 20, the entire people of God, they fasted when they're seeking God's guidance. Ezra and Nehemiah, the people fasted uh, as they sought God's protection and building, rebuilding the temple. When we get to the New Testament, in the book of Acts, uh, people fasted, the early church fasted when they sent off Barnabas and Paul to embark on the missionary journey to the Gentile nations. And even Jesus, he himself gives these instructions about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount when he says this, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And Jesus, he doesn't say if you fast, he says when you fast, and the assumption is that his disciples will fast. Now, fasting is so basic, then I guess we have to wonder why uh, maybe s- some of us don't practice it or why it doesn't seem like uh, one of those important basic practices in uh, Western Christianity, and there are two possibilities. The first possibility is everybody is fasting, but everybody's just keeping with Jesus' teaching, and they're just not talking about it, uh, which is a possibility. second possibility is that we're not really doing it. Now, again, I wouldn't be surprised if most of us are in that second category because you know, fasting seems like a strange practice if, if you think about it, and we often don't understand like why people would do it. And I think part of the reason we don't understand why people would do it is because uh, as a culture, the culture that we are part of, there is this unusual emphasis compared to other cultures in history. There's this unusual emphasis on our individual desires and fulfilling our individual desires. And basically that turns us into consummate consumers. We're just used to consuming and consuming and consuming all the time. And, uh, you know, for, for many of us, or just as a society, it's very hard to set boundaries. I think that's part of the reason why we had that financial crisis 10 years ago. When consuming is something that is so ingrained in us, and when there are no uh, external boundaries that prevent us from consuming and consuming and consuming, to voluntarily withhold something from ourselves that uh, not only we want, but something that we feel like we need, it's probably not easy to do and not something that is going to be natural to us. But you see, one of the problems with consumerism is it assumes something major about people in general. And uh, I think consumerism, it just gives us way too much credit in terms of uh, thinking that we ultimately know what we need, what we want and what we need. Uh, I was listening to this, uh, this interview with Scooter Braun uh, if you don't know who Scooter Braun is, I, you know, I didn't know who he was either, but uh, in the entertainment industry, he's like a pretty important guy. Scooter Braun, he is a talent manager. He manages people like Kanye West, like Justin Bieber, like Ariana Grande. People in Bible study taught me how to pronounce Ariana Grande's last name. And uh, in this interview, you know, he, he had a lot of insightful things to say, actually, and he's, he's at the front line of celebrity, right, celebrity culture. He, he manages celebrities, and he sees, like, the things that they go through and the things that they experience. And in this interview, you know, the interviewer was asking him uh, about celebrities and, you know, how they often have a hard time dealing with a certain level of success uh, that many of his clients have had. And here's what he says. He says, you know, I don't think people are created to be worshipped. 
I don't think people are created to be worshipped. People are created to serve. People are created to give of themselves. And you know, entertainers who are always experiencing this massive success in their lives and in the world, and they are constantly being praised, and they are constantly being worshipped, and they don't have an outlet in which to serve and to give to others, he says this, it messes them up. (laughs) Because that's not what we're created for. It messes people up. And so he, he would go so far as to say, you know, when somebody famous or when somebody who seemingly has it all, somebody who's ultra successful, if they decided to end their lives and take their lives, and if they committed suicide, I wouldn't be that surprised. And he says, you know who I would be surprised by? You know that person who just serves at the homeless shelter every week? I would be surprised if that person ended their life. Because we're not created to, uh, to be worshipped. And if we don't have that outlet of serving, and I think this is what he advises his clients, you've got to find an outlet to serve others because if you are just praised and worshipped all the time, it will mess you up. Now, he shared a, a personal experience himself of how he went through a period of depression when he reached his uh, financial goal at the age of 27. Most people will not experience what he experienced, but you know, when he was about 20, he said this, Uh, I think I need to make this much money in order to be happy. So he set this financial goal. And he reached that goal in a pretty quick period of time. So by the time he was 27, he, uh, you know, he he was talking to his accountant, and his accountant told him, like, how much money he has. And he realized in that moment, I reached my goal, right? I reached my financial goal. But he didn't feel like how he thought he would feel in that moment. He didn't feel, like, elated. He didn't feel happy. He didn't feel full of joy. He felt very depressed, he felt very empty. And he was, uh, I think he was driving. He pulled over. He called his dad. He told him, he's like, you know, I made, I made all the money that I wanted to make, and uh, I just don't feel good. Right? I don't feel happy. And I, I, think the case, I think what we learn from what he is saying about just celebrities and from himself in particular is, you know, we have these dreams of what we think we want or what we think we need in order to be happy, but we don't ultimately know it. We think we know it but we don't ultimately know it. Now, for some of us, for all of us, it's going to be very different. If only I reach a certain point in my career, if only uh, I meet a certain kind of person, if only uh, my family looks a certain kind of way or turns out, if only I can live in a certain kind of place, right? We have all these dreams of if only I have these things, then I will be happy. But how do we really know? You know, very few people actually find out when they uh, reach their ultimate goals of what they want, especially if their goals are lofty. And the experience they have is, it didn't make me happy at the end. I don't think we know ultimately what we need and what we want uh, deep down within our souls. You know, Wednesday we were talking in Bible study about how Christianity, it's, uh, it's just this very paradoxical faith, and it doesn't always make sense at first. You know, think about some of the things that the Bible says. You know, the way you find your life, you got to lose it. The way you experience true wealth is by becoming poor. The way to glory is by becoming a servant. The way to become strong is by becoming weak. The way to become full is by becoming empty. These, these are paradoxes that don't make sense uh, at first glance but ultimately, uh, through the experience of others, I, I think we find that that becomes true and that matches our experience. And it's that last paradox. The way to become full is by becoming empty. That 
I think that's what fasting touches upon. When we become empty, when we refrain ourselves from just feeding into our wants, feeding into our desires for a period of time, I think there's a great, there's great potential that we actually become full through it. That it can shape our affections not for uh, the things in this world, the things that we are constantly consuming, the things that uh, we want that we can physically see and touch, but it shapes our affections for something that is far greater and far more beautiful. It shapes our affections for God himself. And it's when our affections are set on God himself, I think that's when we experience true fullness in our hearts. Now, finally, we get to this passage, and we're going to look at this passage, and I think this is a passage that serves as the inspiration for the Lenten season. Uh, It's a passage where Jesus, he fasts for 40 days prior to the start of his ministry, and uh, let me just be clear from the outset, this passage is not ultimately about fasting. Uh, Jesus, he has just been baptized, and now uh, he goes through this period of testing before he begins his formal ministry in Galilee. And this period of testing is meant to show us that Jesus is the obedient one, whereas Adam failed, whereas Israel failed. Jesus in the wilderness, experiencing the temptation of the devil himself, he does not fail, and he overcomes temptation, and he is the fully obedient one. I think that's ultimately what this passage is showing us about Jesus. But at the same time, I think this passage uh, also touches upon some things that are important for us in terms of the nature of spiritual warfare, in terms of the nature of temptation, in terms of how Satan preys on the affections of the human heart. And you see Jesus in his humanity, he experiences all of these things, which is why the book of Hebrew can say that Jesus was tempted as we are in every respect and yet was without sin. Jesus fasted for 40 days, just like Moses and Elijah fasted for 40 days, and I think there is some parallel being drawn between them. But I also want to suggest that Jesus fasted for 40 days because I think in his humanity, uh, he needed that spiritual power to overcome the temptations of Satan. And I think in that way, I think we learn a little bit about why fasting is important for us as we seek to resist temptations, as we seek to build our affections for Jesus Christ. First thing I want you to notice is this, that the devil, how does he tempt? He tempts by targeting the desires of the heart. He tempts by targeting the affections. Jesus, he is not eating, so he's hungry. And what does the devil do? He tempts Jesus with food. He says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus thwarts off that temptation. He responds with scripture. Then he The devil tries again with another temptation, and this temptation I think is a little bit more subtle, but I would say uh, it's a temptation for control. Uh, And the devil is essentially tempting Jesus to act and to manipulate God to act by saying, go on the top of this uh, temple from the highest heights and jump off, and the angels are going to, to save you. And Jesus again responds with scripture. He says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And then finally, the devil tempts Jesus, and he with power, he takes him, and he says, look, look at all the kingdoms of the world. If you bow down to me, right, you can have these kingdoms. And Jesus says, responds to scripture, and he says, be gone, Satan. Now, because Jesus was, you know, Jesus was, of course, fully divine, but because Jesus was fully human, I do think that there was a he did experience truly the temptations of his heart, the affections of the heart when the devil was tempting him with these things. Now, in spiritual warfare, I think 
what the devil often does is he, he attacks our desires. He uh, incites our desires through temptation. You know what makes temptation so effective is that it comes with a promise. Temptation promises to satisfy you now. Temptation promises to satisfy you immediately, even at the cost of long-term health. And I think that's what makes temptation especially potent for us. I, I think many of us tend to have very busy lives, and because we're busy, uh, we mostly probably do that which is urgent. You know, I, I mentioned before, uh, you know, I have the kids uh, by myself this weekend, and uh, because my wife is traveling and she's on the West Coast, you know, my, my oldest daughter, she loves watching TV, I think, like many kids. And uh, I try to restrict her from watching too much TV because I know in the long term it's not good for her if she's watching too much, uh, too many cartoons. But, you know, between uh, all the things that I had to do, like, you know, make the food, make dinner, you know, I had to give my uh, youngest daughter two baths yesterday because she pooed twice and both times it came out of her diaper and the second time uh, I was like I can't wash this so I just threw the clothes away in the garbage um, you know doing the laundry walking the dog you know doing dishes uh, I'm, I'm sure especially if you have kids but even if you don't have kids you understand what it's like to just kind of feel overwhelmed right and to have so much to do and you know what I did in that moment turned on the TV right I said here, watch some TV, and she watched a lot of TV <laughs> yesterday. And, uh, you know, due to technology, we are also used to being gratified instantly. And, you know, as I'm showing her TV, here's what I realized, too. You know, when I was a kid, I used to wait for Saturday mornings because Saturday mornings was when cartoons would come up. I had to wait a week to watch an episode of what I wanted. You know, with Netflix now, she, she's like, I want to watch that one right now, right? And she gets to watch it right now. And we are just, because of technology, being shaped by this kind of instant gratification culture where now we have this desire and we can immediately satisfy it. And when we feel busy, when we feel like we don't have time, when we feel like uh, we have so many other things to do, guess what? The temptation of immediate satisfaction becomes that much more powerful and that much more potent. And I think it's shaping us. I think it's shaping our hearts. I think it's shaping the desires of our hearts. And therefore, because our lives are like this, that's why I think fasting is all the more important for us. Because here's what fasting is, is saying. Fasting is, uh, is this exhibition of self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Fasting is saying, you know, I have this desire, but I am going to refrain from uh, indulging myself in this desire because I'm hoping that it will yield a long-term long spiritual benefit in terms of my heart, in terms of my relationship with God. You know, there's also a section in, in Titus. Paul, he is addressing every group in the church. He's addressing older men, younger men. Older women, younger women. And, you know, he gives different instructions to each of those groups. But you know the one thing he mentions to all of those people? He mentions self-control. He says, be self-controlled. Self-control means that we are not slaves to our desires. Self-control means that just because we want something, we can say no to it. And not just bad things, good things as well. And you see, I think one of the ways in which we both exhibit and grow in self-control is we, we practice denying ourselves of the things that we desire 
And that's why I think fasting is such an important spiritual discipline for us because it causes us to try to exercise self-control so that our hearts are not ruled by simply the things that we want, but we can say our hearts are ruled by something that is greater, a greater desire for God. And fasting is a way to reject the urgent and the immediate in order to cultivate something that is more important in the long term. I think we can uh, uh, use a bit more of that in our lives so that you know, our desires and our affections don't turn into this uncontrollable wildfire. And if you saw images or if, you're, uh, if you follow the news in California, wildfire is something that would, I think, uh, inspire or tell us that it's danger or terror in terms of that imagery. But I think that's a, that's a real danger for many of us living in this instant gratification, like easy to access, fulfill our desire kind of world that we live in. Again, particular to just Western Christians, uh, affluent people. Second thing I think we see here is this. You know, with fasting, uh, fasting comes with spiritual power. And y- you see the instances of fasting and when fasting is, uh, when people would fast. And, I, you know, I imagine that's why certain figures in the Bible, including Jesus, they would fast during certain periods of their life. You know, in the Bible, how does power come? Power comes by way of weakness. When we are weak, we humble ourselves, we depend on God, and through that, God demonstrates his power. You know, in the Old Testament, God's people, they would win battles not when they had the strongest armies, but they would win battles when they were weak and dependent on God. And I think that's even what we see here, that Jesus, he experienced what it was like to be weak. Verse 2 tells us that after 40 days of fasting, he was hungry. And Jesus depends upon the truth of God's word even to resist the temptations of the devil. And I think that's, that's the way spiritual power comes. You know, people, uh, sometimes you hear people who desire revival in a particular country, in a particular place. It's often coupled with fasting because there's this understanding, I can't do it. I need to access spiritual power, but that power does not reside within myself, within my talents, within my gifts, within my ideas, but that power ultimately resides from God himself. And people fast. Now, if there's that desire within us that we want to see God's power, perhaps we also ought to incorporate fasting into our lives. Now, there's a final thing that I want to mention here, and this will be the last point about fasting. Uh, Fasting is not meant to be forever, and here's what I mean by that. You know, there's a place in Matthew 9 where John's disciples ask Jesus, uh, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but Jesus your disciples aren't fasting. And Jesus' response is this. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, Jesus is basically saying this, that my disciples are not fasting because I am currently physically here with them, and this is a time of celebration. But there will be a time when I will no longer be with them And he is anticipating when he would die on the cross and resurrect from the dead and ascend into heaven. And he says, in that day when I am not with them again uh, in body, that is when they will fast again. You know, you might be aware fasting is not unique to the Christian faith. There's uh, plenty of other uh, religions that incorporate fasting. For example, Muslims fast during the period of Ramadan. Jewish people fast on Yom Kippur. 
Buddhist fast, I think, as a way of uh, spiritual awakening. What makes Christian fasting different? I think the difference lies in the cross. Because you see, when Jesus, he died on the cross, in one sense, it was the ultimate fast. God, in the person of Jesus, he emptied himself in a way that we will uh, never understand because Jesus was God himself. He emptied himself, took on the form of humanity to the point of becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus, he would experience this uh, deep kind of hunger, this deep kind of pain, this deep kind of weakness that we will never know. That this cosmic separation of Jesus where he experiences and receives the, the judgment of God for our sin upon himself, this cosmic fast, this cosmic emptying of himself that he experienced on the cross through his death means that there is a cosmic feast that we can be invited to. You see that Matthew 9 passage, Jesus says his disciples aren't going to fast because the bridegroom is with them. The time to fast is going to be when the bridegroom is taken away, which refers to this period that we are living in now. And after he talks about fasting, Jesus talks about how new wine can't be put into old wineskins, but new wine must be put in new wineskins. And it's, it's kind of a strange thing to say, but he's basically referring to this. He's saying, uh, my arrival, it signals the start of something new. My arrival starts this new age. And in this new age of the kingdom where there is eternal joy, eternal security, hope, where heaven is breaking through into this old age like sunlight breaking through the windows of this room, Jesus is saying, the new age has come. And there will be a day when this new age uh, will reach its, its climax in the new heaven and the new earth. I think Matthew 9 is anticipating that picture. And it's a picture painted in Revelation 19, this marriage supper of the Lamb, this ultimate feast where at the end of history, all believers are going to be invited to partake in this great feast. And Satan and sin and death will be defeated and vanquished and Christ will be victorious. You see, Christian believers, uh, we ought to long for that feast. Our hearts ought to long for that feast. But the truth of the matter is it doesn't always long for it. And you see, Christians, we practice fasting so that we can cultivate our hearts to long for that feast that is promised to us in Christ through the message of the gospel. John Piper, he wrote a book on fasting uh, called The Hunger for God. And uh, I think he says it a little bit better than, actually a lot better than I just said it. So uh, let, me, let me read you what he says. He says this, We have tasted the powers of the age to come, and our fasting is not because we are hungry for something we have not yet experienced, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying. We must have all that is possible to have. The newness of our fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by his Spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. The new fasting, the Christian fasting, is a hunger for all the fullness of God, aroused by the aroma of Jesus' love and by the taste of God's goodness in the gospel of Christ.
Why do we fast in light of the cross? We fast so we can experience that. That feast. When we feast upon Christ, it renews faith. It helps us forget ourselves. It strengthens our resolve to persevere. It gives us a sense of gratitude. It restores our joy. And that is ultimately why we need to incorporate fasting into our lives. That is ultimately what we need. You know, I, I sometimes I feel, um, at least for myself personally, maybe some of you feel like this, uh, sometimes I feel I get a little bit too sophisticated in my analysis of myself. And here's what I mean by that. You know, when uh, I struggle, when we struggle, uh, you know, I think about, oh, what kind of personality do I have? What are my experiences? What was my childhood like? What are my relationships like? What's my community like? What decisions have I made? What regrets do I have? What injustices have I uh, potentially experienced? And all of these things, and you kind of, right, you analyze yourself and you go, I'm struggling because of uh, whatever, X, Y, and Z. Now, I'm not saying that's not helpful, but, you know, at the end of the day, God knows us because he created us. And therefore, God knows what we need. And what we need is probably not more uh, analysis, but what we need is to know Jesus, to receive Jesus, to delight in Jesus, to obey Jesus, and to worship Jesus. That's ultimately what we need. And to help us do that, we can fast so that we can feast on Jesus and be reminded of him. Uh, let me say this. If, if you're struggling, consider fasting. Just consider it. If you're unhappy, discontent in life, consider fasting. If your faith is not where you want it to be, just try it. Try fasting. If you lack joy, you lack purpose, if you feel spiritually dry, think about fasting. If you're struggling with a particular sin, if you're struggling in a marriage, in a relationship, if you feel like you need greater clarity, if you're not sure of what to do with your life, consider fasting. <laughs> it doesn't make sense on the surface, I know. But I do think God knows us. God knows what we need. And hopefully through our fasting, our prayers are intensified. We begin to feast upon the goodness of Christ that begins to change the affections of our heart. It begins to transform our perspective. It begins to shift focus away from ourselves unto him and his beauty. And I think that will solve a lot of our issues in life. Friends, uh, I know, I've, I, I've sat where you sat, and when uh, somebody has said, let's fast, I didn't even think about it. <laughs> I just assumed, why would I do that? I know that's gonna, going to be like the natural response. But let's try it and see what happens to our hearts. And uh, I, do, I do think God is going to do amazing things in shaping our affections and building this church, building this city for his glory. Let's pray together.